This morning I want to help you with your prayer life. It's such an important activity, asking God for things, because prayer is articulating our faith. It's expressing, it's speaking our dependence upon God. And this sermon may be strange because initially it may inhibit you and make you more self-conscious rather than God-conscious in your prayerfulness. But eventually, I believe it will liberate you, for Jesus' way to pray is the right way to pray. That is with sincerity and with truth. That is expressing genuine faith. For real prayer is faith spoken, is faith articulated. But that faith must be a genuine faith. James 2 makes clear that speaking about our faith is a danger. For real faith is action, not words, and yet prayer is faith in words. Even demons believe genuinely, as can be seen by the fact that they shudder. So when we claim to believe and yet it makes no difference to our life, we are actually believing less than the demons. Thus, with our prayer, we can pray to our Heavenly Father with all the words of eloquence and with all the key phrases of excellent liturgy and with the the length of a monk and with the intensity and passion of a whirling dervish and with the exhibitionism of a Pentecostal and still not pray at all. So it is to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that I want to draw your attention if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Now critical to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is to recognise that it is part of Matthew's Gospel and shouldn't be ever detached from it. In chapter 4, the disciples have left all to follow Jesus. In chapter 4, at the end of it, they have witnessed the massive success of the Jesus mission in Galilee and the enormous popularity of Jesus. And then in chapter 5, they're called aside to be warned of the coming persecution to those who would be fishers for men. Chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you, Uh, when when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Stark difference to what they've just seen in the popularity of Jesus. This persecution is going to come upon them because of the distinctible, distinctive, unmistakable life of the true disciple, the genuinely changed life, the good works that cannot be hidden but will show that God is at work in them, bringing therefore praise and glory to the Father in heaven and not to them. Their genuine passion for righteousness, illustrated firstly in chapter 5, keeping the law to the maximum in contrast to the Pharisaic hypocrisy which appears to keep the word of God but in actual fact spends its time looking for the loopholes in order to minimise its implications. And secondly, in chapter 6, practising righteousness not in front of people to be seen by them but in front of God who sees all. Some people find difficulty in holding together chapters 5 and 6. For chapter 5, verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. While chapter 6, verse 1 says, 
Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward for your, your Father who is in heaven. The difficulty of putting these two verses together comes from not realising that true righteousness, genuine righteousness, cannot be hidden. It is like salt. It is like a light. It is like a city on a hill. Its effects are inevitable and will inevitably be seen by all. So we don't have to wear our righteousness on our shirt sleeves in order to impress people. In fact, we mustn't wear our righteousness on our shirt sleeves in order to impress people, for then it would not be genuine righteousness. It won't be salt or light. We will not be like a city on a hill. It won't bring us persecution and it will not bring praise to God the Father in heaven. It may bring us praise. We may be popular. We may be well thought of. We may be considered as very super spiritual, but we will not be bringing glory to the Father in heaven and we will not be fishing for men either. Now, Jesus illustrates this principle by teaching on almsgiving and on prayer and on fasting. But I'm just going to look at the prayer section today. It's that prayer section that I want to look at now, for it's part of his disciples' life and righteousness. It's something that he assumes because it is enjoined in the Old Testament, as it is in the New Testament, that Christians will be people of prayer. So I read from verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you go, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. For most of us, prayer is one of the greatest parts of being a child of God. And yet, it's one of the strangest, most mysterious parts as well. For here in prayer, we're talking to God. And he who rules the universe listens to our concerns. And more, will act in response to our requests about our concerns. That's an extraordinary activity to be engaged in. But Jesus' concern about prayer is for reality. For hardly any activity is so open to abuse as prayer is, both by the hypocrites, who appear to be talking to God when they are actually talking to humans, and the pagans, who do not know God and Babylon in senselessness and in meaninglessness. So the disciples of Jesus must have reality in our prayerful relationship with God. When we pray to God, we should be speaking to our Heavenly Father. 
in the same kind of meaningful language with which we would communicate to our earthly father. To highlight the reality of this prayer, Jesus talks of two false ways of prayer, in contrast to the father's true way to pray. These false ways to prayer are the hypocrite's way and the pagan's way or the Gentile's way. The hypocrite's way is that they may be seen by others. These are amongst the Jews, God's own people, and we must be particularly concerned as Christian people that we do not fall into the error of the Jews. For the hypocrite's way of prayer seems to be talking to God, but in fact is talking to the people around about. The hypocrite's way is to be more concerned with what others think of him and his prayer than what God thinks of him. The hypocrite looks like he's depending upon God, but is really trying to impress fellow humans. So Jesus speaks of them loving to pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, but always to be seen by others. It's this love of others attention that marks out the hypocrite and his giving and his fasting as well as his praying is marked by the same thing. Now, my friends, this is still so easy for us to be doing. To be concerned about how people react to our prayer, to try to be poetic and eloquent, or to worry about the fact that we lack eloquence, to lead in prayer publicly but be prayerless privately, to make long-winded and impressive prayers, to insist upon people making everything and every conversation a matter of prayer. Oh, brother, we must pray about that. That really is important. I knew a man who did that to me all the time until he left Christianity when he was found out for stealing money to pay for his mistress. But whenever I met him, we have to pray about this. This was a matter of prayer. He was so prayerful and godless. Or to promise, oh yes, brother, I'll be praying for you in that. Yes, sister, I'll remember you in prayer and never actually pray for them in this or that. It's so easy to do, isn't it? Hypocrisy is not limited to the first century. It's alive and well in the 21st century. It's not limited to the Jews. It's alive and well amongst Christians. And Jesus warned that the hypocrite receives their reward. For they will be heard by others. They would have no reward from their father in heaven. He wouldn't listen to their prayers. But they are not really praying to him. They're only really praying to others. And so they get exactly what they deserve the reward of other people, that is, others hear them. It's an exquisitely just reward to get what you ask for. You want to impress people? You've impressed people. Bully for you. They're not heard by God to whom they were talking, but are seen by the people for whom they are putting on the show. The second false way of prayer is those who think that they will be heard for their many words. This is the pagans' way of prayer. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations who didn't have the revelation of God to Moses and do don't, don't, so not uh, know God beyond creation. They also to pray to God or to their gods for all people in their various ways cry out to God. But they're just heaping up empty phrases and many words in order to impress their gods thinking that they can force the hand of God by their prayerfulness. 
There are so many examples of this kind of praying today in the nations of the world outside biblical revelation. The, the, the prayer wheels or the, the flags fluttering in the wind, the Hare Krishna chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare, Hare, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. It goes for two hours every morning of the week just saying Hare Krishna, Hare, Hare, Hare until the endorphins take over and you move into another experience of existence just like the drugs that they used to take before they became members of the Krishna Association. Or the prayer mats facing Mecca where Muslims so impress the Westerners by praying five times in a day. Sometimes words that they do not even understand for they do not speak the language. But Jesus warns the disciples not to be like them. For it's a danger to all people who wish to pray, thinking that we can impress God by our length of prayers, by our Elizabethan language, or Latin, by our formal grammatically proper English. Are you impressed by the tales of Wesley or Luther praying for hours each day, wearing grooves in their prayer kneelers? Don't you feel inadequate that your prayer time is so short and your words so few? Or are you impressed by the Korean prayers who have seen their nation come to Christ in this last generation? People who are getting up on the mountains praying for three, four hours every morning before breakfast. Isn't that impressive? One of our Buddhist graduates of, uh, well, sorry, one of our graduates here from Moore College was asked about this. He said, the problem is that my Korean friends have not yet been properly converted out of their Buddhism. They still think they're heard for many words. That's why they're up the mountains. When I was a student here at Moore College, for various reasons, I was delegated by the student body to approach the principal about having an all-night prayer meeting. So I went and saw Dr Knox and I asked him whether it would be all right if we could do this. And he said, yes, perfectly all right. But do you think you're going to be heard for your many words that you want to pray all night? And I said, well, I'm... Um, um, um. <laughs> and then he said, uh, well, I'll come, but I'm only coming for the first 15 minutes because I find that when I close my eyes for more than 15 minutes, I'm asleep. <laughs> the prayer meeting was never held. <laughs> the trouble is false thinking. The nations pray like this because they don't know God. The God who revealed himself to Moses and, of course, ultimately in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They use prayer like some kind of magic, trying to manipulate God into giving us some blessing, trying to find the mechanism that will force the hand of God, trying to impress God by super-spiritual efforts, trying to appease God by extra devotion. So they think they'll be heard for their many words. They're not concerned about what they say. It can be utter meaningless rubbish. They're concerned about how much they say, being, beating God into submission. This is all contrasted with the Father's way of prayer. For he's the one that we're to pray to, and his is the reward that we should seek. So the way to pray to your Father in heaven is secretly, verse 6, don't you go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who sees in secret. The idea here is secrecy, not that we are never to pray with anybody or never to pray out loud or on a street corner or in a synagogue or church. You see, you can be literal here and miss the point completely. 
of the King James Version said that you were to go into your closet. And I knew a man back in those days who actually used to go into his wardrobe, seeing that was the closest he had to a closet, and pray there. When his family found him there, they asked what he was doing and he was fulfilling what the word of God said and so they left the door closed. And from there on in, he knew that he could convey to his family how prayerful he was by climbing into his closet. Whether or not he prayed, it didn't matter. Here was a way of being able to slavishly follow the words of scriptures and at the same time completely miss the point, being both hypocritical, praying in order to be seen, and like the Gentiles, impressing by doing it for a long period of time in the closed closet. The idea of secrecy is the safeguarding of sincerity, for sincerity is what matters in our prayers, sincerity in our conversation with God. It's what we want in all our conversations with each other. It's how we're to communicate in reality. We say what we mean, not to impress the bystander, not to impress the hearer, but to communicate the idea. That is how we're to preach. And here in prayer, it's to express our requests to God, our Father. I was in a congregation of a very highly educated, intelligent group of people. And there was a member whose IQ was as far below average as theirs was above. He was literally illiterate. He could never read. His intelligence wasn't sufficient. When it came to open public prayer time, he was always the first to the microphone in order to lead in prayer. It was embarrassing to hear him, for he was so infantile in what he prayed for and how he expressed himself. As in childish ways, he asked our Heavenly Father for help in all kinds of strange and extraordinary situations of life. I say it was embarrassing, for in that man's childlike manner of talking to God, he lay open the rebuke to all educated people who thought that they could impress God. For in that man's childlike manner, you could hear the true child of God unconsciously talking to his father. The clever prayers, the theologically clever prayers, the, the wander all over the scripture texts of the Bible prayers never came close to listening to that man as he prayed. For he talked to his father. The reason for secrecy is sincerity. He didn't have enough intelligence to be insincere. That's the way to pray to our father in heaven, plainly, sincerely, truthfully, really, not impressively, but honestly. And then we will have our reward, for then our Father in heaven will hear our prayer, which is the reward of praying to our Father. He doesn't give us brownie points because we remembered to pray, and he hasn't got a watch on us and to reward us with extra flybys because somehow we prayed longer yesterday than the day before. But he listens to the child who comes to him in sincerity and in reality and makes whatever request we wish to make to him. For there is nothing too great for our father to deal with, and there is nothing too small for him to be concerned over. For in asking him for things, we're relying upon him, we're depending upon him, we're expressing our faith in him, we are trusting him. 
and as in everything else in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to pray differently. Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 8, do not be like them. John Stott in his wonderful little commentary, the Christian counterculture, says that's the text of the sermon. Do not be like them. We're not to be like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases in showy attempts to please God, nor, for that matter, like the hypocrites who heap up showy prayers in prayerful attempts to impress people. Our prayer life is to be different. Friends, it's a very important area of true spirituality and true righteousness. Church activities for which we take responsibility as leaders of churches easily create the environment where we are more impressed by the form than by the reality. The desire to do everything decently and in order can become so preciously impressive that we lose the sense of the normal reality of praying. As if God is only to be contacted through our rituals. The desire for expressing ourselves passionately can also become preciously impressive so that we lose the sense of the normal reality of praying as if God can only be contacted by shouting at him emotionally. It's a snare both for those who can perform with style and for those who do not pray because they're inhibited by their lack of style. Have you ever led in prayer publicly and been concerned about how you came across? Checked with your spouse later or with friends? Have you ever declined to lead in prayer because you're concerned that you, you couldn't do that? The hypocrisy is the same either way. God is neither impressed by you nor embarrassed by you. Good news both ways, isn't it? Remember, your father knows what you need before you ask him. The pagans don't know God. That's why they think they'll be heard for their many words. But we know our Heavenly Father. We know that he knows our needs before we've even asked him for help. We know his power and his love. We don't have to coerce him to do us a favour. We don't have to remind him as if he's old and forgetful and somehow dementia has come upon him. We don't, we don't have to keep his attention on his job like those poor prophets of Baal who were concerned, as Elijah put it, that the, he'd gone off to the toilet and was too busy at the moment to listen. Rather, we have to express our dependence upon him with gratitude in our hearts, asking him for whatever our concerns are. So Jesus gives, teaches us how to pray when he says, pray like this. And it's interesting in praying like this, there's none of those super spiritual expressions about centre down, look inside your navel, do this, put your hands up, your hands down, on your face, on your... How are you to pray? Well, how are you to pray is what you pray. See, the pagans don't know God, that's why they think they'll be heard for their many words. But we know our Heavenly Father. We know his power and his love. And so when we pray, we pray the content of the prayer, for the content of the prayer, the concerns of our hearts are much more important than the posture and manner of our prayers. The fishermen have left their nets 
and they're to pray for the coming of the kingdom of God that they are proclaiming. I'll not go through the Lord's Prayer now, but in the logic of this passage and in this sermon, notice those few things about the, the prayer that Jesus taught. It addresses God directly as our Father. It is extraordinarily short. It's to the point. It prays for the things that God has promised, such as in the Old Testament reading we had a few moments ago from Ezekiel 36. In fact, you can find all the petitions of the Lord's Prayer in Ezekiel 36, 37. It prays about the coming of the kingdom when God's name will be hallowed amongst his people for they are going to be transformed by the coming of the Spirit of God to live differently, to live desiring to keep the law rather than to minimise, avoid and bring dishonour on God by rejecting the law. It's a praying that we might share in the kingdom and live by the kingdom in forgiveness. This is our prayer. These are the matters that should be our concerns when we come to our Father in heaven. So, for the disciples of Jesus... To do their righteousness like salt of light, they have to have real prayer that flows from the reality of God, the Father in heaven, who knows everything before we ask, who sees all things, even those that are done in secret, who knows the motivations and intentions of our heart and who rewards those who come to him, who is bringing his kingdom and his holiness and his righteousness in accordance with the promises that he has made through his prophets. Such prayer flows from our right relationship with God, the heaven, the Father in heaven, the relationship that we can only have through Jesus Christ, his only son. For by his death, he's turned aside our father's anger against his father's anger against us and paid for all our sins. And by his resurrection, he has poured out his spirit into our hearts, giving us new births so that we can call upon him as Abba, Father, for we are now his sons and his daughters. And so now forgiven by him, adopted into his family, we can approach God, the just and holy ruler of the world, and call him Father and make our requests known to him, knowing that he's more willing to give than we are to ask. My brothers and sisters in Christ, and my brothers and sisters in Moore College, you have left your fishing nets to fish for men. You are now preparing or being prepared like the fishermen of old were prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount for a lifetime of preaching this kingdom and fishing for others. Do not follow the ways of this world. Not even, especially not even, in the super-spirituality of exhibitionism in your religion, be it in the way you do your music or the way you do your prayer or the way in which you do your good works or the way in which you fast or the way... Do not give in to exhibitionism. And especially not in prayer. For on that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
think it's the worst verse of the Bible and it's one I hope you and I never hear.